Alrighty then. I want you to see. That gets my goat. That gets my goat. Say it mad. That gets my goat. Hi everybody, this is Big Yankovich. Welcome to another episode of That Gets My Goat on the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine. I'm Big Yankovich. Yes, and I'm Rich Outfield, and I'm Rich Outfield. And I am also Rich Outfield, just to be as equally redundant as you were on your last one. <laughs> is this an evergreen episode? It might as well be, because these books came out a long time ago, and we did nothing about them when they did, and now here we are, face to face. <laughs> Hoping to find what? Uh, that we're two of a kind. Hmm. So uh, this is, I don't know, this is something we haven't done before, is it? We're actually talking about books. Oh my gosh, wait, this can't be possible because you don't read. I do not. You don't even know how to read, do you? Thus far I have not oh, learned how. Oh, oh, I know how it works. Somebody read this to you, yes, didn't they? Yes, that's right. It's not the same as reading when someone <laughs> reads it to you. But yeah, we're going to talk about some books today. Um, there's this little-known author who put out a book. Uh, his name is Robert Galbraith. And uh, yeah, he put out a book. Uh, it was last year or the year before? It was last year, 2013. Of course, this episode will actually be coming out uh, in 2017 because <laughs> it, it's really evergreen. So disregard that comment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in 2013, she put out a book. He put out a book, sorry. <clears throat> oh, what giveaway. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a kerfuffle, I guess, happened because of that. Now, somehow, I think I was in Canada when this happened, because I had no idea, and you told me about it. It was like this... So why don't you quickly summarize the kerfuffle? Okay, so a book came out called The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, and Robert Galbraith was supposedly a, uh, a veteran of the Afghan of the war in Afghanistan. So, okay. Wouldn't I want think to either one anyone. of those work. He had retired. He was no longer a soldier. And he uh, had taken up this hobby of writing. And this was his first published novel. And it was going to be a whole series of detective novels about a veteran soldier, Private Eye. And uh, the book came out. And I, it's been a while since I read all this. I think it sold like 1,500 copies. Or that, that was the first printing of the book, and it sold out all those 1,500 copies and just kind of came out quietly, and a few people bought it. And then uh, somewhere along the way, the truth was revealed that, it, that Robert Galbraith did not exist, that Robert Galbraith was a pseudonym for J.K. Rowling. And uh, the way this came out was the wife of someone at the publishing house tweeted it. Her husband had mentioned to her, I guess, that their publishing house was putting out this book by Rowling under a pseudonym. And she, and she was looking for a reason for them to have to get divorced. And so she tweeted it. Yeah, I guess. It was a terrible rift in their marriage. I mean, that's, Got him fired. That's a subject for another conversation when people tweet or Facebook or just post things without ever considering there might be consequences to it. And the consequence to this was suddenly... The Cuckoo's Calling shot up to number one on the Amazon books list and sold millions of copies instead of the 1,500 that it had previously sold. And the publisher had to reprint and reprint and reprint, except for now it says in fine print, Robert Galbraith is a pseudonym for author J.K. Rowling. 
And she was upset by this because she had wanted to publish these, a whole series of these, on the sly in a way, just to be able to publish freely without... The onus of being J.K. Rowling, I would assume. Yeah. I, and to get honest responses, too. I think I've heard that somewhere, you know, how neat it was for her to be able to read a review, and the review was just a review of the book. It wasn't comparing this to this body of work that had changed publishing right. or anything like that. And, and so she was disappointed by that, and I think she decreed that the, all that money was going to go to charity... And, uh, you know, that they would still publish the next book, but, you know, instead of being able to publish it in a small way, of course, they'd have to do it on a very big scale. And I, I, we had this conversation. There was a previous That Gets My Go with Marshall Latham where we talked about pseudonyms, and I told this story then. Oh, crap. But that was... We're going to have to cut that whole... When I had just... Out. <laughs> that was when I had just started the book and you had not yet read it. Right. And what happened is I went to the library... Almost as soon as I heard this news, I think. Mm -hmm. And there is, they had the book, and I checked it out. And I also checked out The Casual Vacancy, which is the other novel, the other non-Harry Potter book that J.K. Rowling had published. And uh, I made you take that one, and I took Cuckoo's Calling. And you burned through Casual Vacancy so fast that I had to check out a second Cuckoo's Calling to satiate you, because I was only like a third of the way through Cuckoo's Calling while you were ready for it. And then eventually, when I finished Cuckoo's Calling, I read a uh, Terry Brooks book, and you just sat there waiting and waiting. So we could talk about the two books. And after the Terry Brooks book, I got Casual Vacancy and read it myself. And I just barely finished it this week, on uh, the two days ago. And you had said, when you finish it, we'll sit down, we'll talk about the two books. And we'll sound smart because we've read books. And you read books all the time. But I... Well, I, 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 I have books read to me all the time. I have a, a person just on retainer that just... He has to ride with me to and from work and just read while I drive. And when somebody calls me on the phone, I go, oh, hold on just a second. got to take this. It is kind of like that, though. Uh, yeah, so we've both uh, now experienced these novels... And uh, we thought we'd talk about them. And similarities, differences? No, there's no similarities. Except for every single name is so weirdly spelled. <laughs> yeah, there's... Well, if you haven't read these books at all, if, you have, if you're not familiar with them, which isn't that wild. They're not like Harry Potter. They're not universally read by every person. It's not like they're required. You know, they, they hand you the book to give to your child when they're born in the hospital kind of a thing like Harry Potter is. So there's a lot of people that haven't read them. Uh, Cuckoo's Calling is the private detective novel, so it's a mystery. Whereas A Casual Vacancy, the only uh, category that it can fit in is what, like literature? Is that what they categorize it as? Do they have something else for it? I looked it up and she said that the publisher promoted it as a black comedy. And I was just like, oh crap. No wonder people hated this book. <laughs> they promoted it as a black comedy? It's not a black comedy. There were no blacks. And whoever said that can just twitch and die on a pin like a bug yeah, in an there entomologist. Were, there were no study. blacks in this book. I don't understand. Yeah, literature is good. It's, it is fiction. General fiction. Small town fiction. 
it's a little bit like soap operas are. Yeah, it, it melodrama or whatever. But the, in, as far as a book goes, it's not romance. It's not any genre that I can think of. Yeah, so it's just a basically a regular everyday life kind of a story. There's no special element that would make it a genre fiction kind of a thing. There's no mystery to solve uh, or any of that kind of stuff. There's a town called Pagford, and uh, this town has a multitude of citizens that we keep track of throughout the course of the book, and we find out what happens to them through their over their, I don't know, what did you say, the six months maybe that this book uh, yeah, encompasses? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the two books that we've got. And like Rich says, the similarities are that Joe Rowling wrote both of these books. Right, and let, let me interrupt for a second. When the name Robert Galbraith was spilled to really be J.K. Rowling, the first story that went around was that some academic at Oxford or something like that had read Cuckoo's Calling and thought, huh, this sounds an awful lot like J.K. Rowling. And so he created a computer program that would compare like the structures and the sentence Use certain word usage. How many times she says darkly? Exactly that sort of thing, and sure enough, you know, he he typed, he uh, inserted the text of uh, Cuckoo's Calling, and the computer went J.K. Rowling as the author's style or whatever. And (laughs) and I read this this little article thing or whatever, probably on that same day when I found out that uh, Cuckoo's Calling was was her, and I was just like, oh wow, that's. That's amazing. I mean, computers are awesome. Why do we even have people anymore? But now that I've read the book, I call bullshit with a capital Q, man. This, uh, this didn't feel anything like her other stuff. And Casual Vacancy felt even less like the Harry Potter series. I, they, they, were, they weren't apples and oranges. They were like apples and a rock and a cloud. Three different... Like, you're just like, <laughs> wow. And so... There's that. But but listening to the book or reading the book, knowing that it was J.K. Rowling, I did listen for it. I did try and find. And, and there was one use of Darkly, I think, that I remember in Cuckoo's Calling and zero uses of Darkly in uh, the other one. The casual vacancy was filled to the brim with, I, I was very angry with him, big, for saying what he said to me where there's this completely unnecessary hymn again and 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 again. So many times it was, I started just like, ah, there wasn't a single one that I even remembered in any of the Harry Potters or in of Cuckoo's Calling. And so if that's another thing where it's just like, well, how does somebody do this again and again and again? Like a, like it's their personal tick, but don't do it on the next book. Anyway, I'm sorry about that. That was a, that, that should be an outtake as well, but I'm not going to make it one. Maybe uh, she purposefully picks a tick per book to use. She's like, okay, I'm going to use this. This is what I'm going to say every time. And, you know, that might be possible. That I know there are tons of books like A Casual Vacancy that are are like uh, the story of a small town and the bickering people within it or the people, you know, the plots, the little machinations of little people and stuff like that. You know, I'm sure Dickens wrote two or three books like that. And so maybe she was trying to emulate that or she'd read several of those books and he's like and I'm, I'm gonna do a book like that and maybe with 
Cuckoo's Calling. She had read several mysteries. Maybe she'd read American mysteries, and she thought, I'm going to write a British mystery that doesn't have Agatha Christie's name on it or doesn't have Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on it, and we're going to see how that feels. And maybe that's why the styles are different, but I... I still, I found nothing. Did, did you find anything where you're just like, ah, this is the woman that wrote Harry Potter? Not really. I didn't notice anything that uh, stood out like that to me at all. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard. First of all, I read them in the opposite order of you. So my first introduction was A Casual Vacancy, which is a hard book. It is. It was not something where you just, you know, it's not like you just slip into it, like you got on the water slide and you're already all wet, and you zip down, and then you just slip right into the water, and you were just immersed and having a good time in the pool. It was hard to get into. When I first started listening to it, I got on Facebook, and I compared it, you know, and I remember saying that Rowling must have finished the Harry Potter series and thought, you know who really didn't get their fair share of attention in Harry Potter was the Dursleys. Let's do a whole book just about the Dursleys. In fact, I'll make a town full of Dursleys. And so they're all these really snippy, small-minded, the, the worst kind of housewife uh, that you've heard of. You know, the one that's gossipy and looking out their window. Oh, do you believe what this person did across the street? Oh, I saw her out there. And, and you know, that kind of, all the characters are those kind of people to begin with. And it was really, really hard to get into this book. But luckily, I have a 45-minute commute to work and then a 45-minute commute home from work. And that's if the traffic is breezing through, which it almost never is. So I go through these books fast. I'm able to just listen and listen and listen and get beyond that. It's got to be a really dull production of an audiobook to get me to quit. Okay, let me interrupt for a second. There was a unique thing also going on in your family in that your wife read these books while we were reading them as well. That is true, yeah. And she read them from hardcovers, which are the way books should be read. And Clay. <laughs> you told me that she had a really hard time with casual vacancy, too. A really hard time not just closing it and saying, okay, I'm done. And so did I. I mean, I, you had said that first, and so I was prepared for it. But it went on and on of just the mire and the muck and the, yeah, the sleaze of, of this little town. And there was nobody to, to latch on to. The, the book begins with the death of a prominent citizen in this town. And he's a prominent citizen in that every, the town is so small, everybody interacts with everybody else, and he happened to be a decent guy. Yeah, I think that's the, the thing. The, the character that you should have latched on to was the one that died on page one. <laughs> he was the guy where he would have been the hero of the book had he not died on page one. Because he was the decent guy in town. And so you see the ripples, the effects of his death on several citizens and their kids or people in the school or people in the projects and things like that. And some people delight in the fact that this guy is dead. And then, you know, other people are like, oh, no, this could be so much more work for me. And other people are just like, wow, this is my opportunity now, now that he's gone. And there is a little bit of sadness 
And when I read it, I think, holy cow, it was like the second disc or maybe even the third before we ever find somebody who is just like a, a decent person who's just very sad that he died with no ulterior, ulterior motives, no reason, you know, um, other than that it's just like this was a good person who is dead. And that made it so hard. And there were, the, I, I just didn't want to read about these people. And when you had mentioned that it was the Dursleys, it's not just the Dursleys, but it's also the Malfoys and the Voldemort family that we're reading about in this little town. <laughs> I'm just bad, worse, and worst. And so I, just, I, I think we talked about this that night that we did the Marshall Latham episode before we recorded it. I asked you, if it weren't J.K. Rowling, would you have stopped? And you're like, well, it's well-written. It's no fun, but it's well-written. It takes a lot for me to put down a book, is what you'd said. And right. I was like, oh, not for me, man. <laughs> I w- and, and I would have been done. I felt like I owed it to her because she gave me so much joy with the Harry Potter books. But I felt I owed it to you because you had slogged through it as well. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was really hard. It took a long time. I would say half of the book is gone before you finally have a character that you start rooting for. Your main character, the one that you like. And there wasn't a main character in this book. No. It was an ensemble type story where every, you know, you kept going here and there and everywhere. And an interesting thing I thought was how it was written. It was written in an omniscient point of view, which you don't see very often. It wasn't a third person limited kind of a point of view telling of the story she would be in the middle of a scene and it would be being told this person is thinking this and then the other person in the room suddenly it were in their head and they're thinking this and then the other person in the room and there were a few times i'll have to admit that i got confused because you know you're driving home and your attention can wander off to this you know the car that you almost hit or the child that you tried to hit and missed, or, you know, whatever it is that uh, the drifter that you have in the trunk that you need to get rid of, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that you're, you're thinking of while you're driving. And when su- suddenly the thoughts coming out of the person's head that you thought is one person, but you wandered, your mind wandered just long enough for them to switch heads on you. Now you're like, what the hell? Why is Howard Mollison thinking this? Why is Howard Mollison a woman? You know, it's just weird things that will happen to you by way of omniscient point of view. Maybe that's why people don't use it much, is because it can be easily confusing when you switch from one person to another. Well, it's also frustrating not to have a main character who you're just like, that. that is who the book is about. Mm-hmm. So I can say, you know, that it's okay to not like all these people around them because at least I have this person that I like and I hope that they succeed. But to get to know some of these truly awful, empty people and and find out their justifications for their actions or or the way they see the world, it it made me feel bad. It made me feel kind of like if somebody followed me around, would I be one of these people? Would I seem like one of these people? Because there are things I do that aren't great or for anybody's benefit except my own. Like your drifter killing habit? Well, I learned that by watching you, but yes. (laughs) And and I just like, well, if somebody wrote, if I were one of these characters, how positively would I come off? And 
everybody is the hero of their own story in mm-hmm. real life. I don't see how you can't be because it's your life. I mean, maybe if you have somebody that you can spend 100% of your time focusing on that's not you, that works. But I don't. And uh, I just, yeah, I thought, I thought wow. Because sometimes you would understand why a person felt the way they did, even though it was not a noble thing that they did or they thought. Like, for example, a, a, a character decides to sabotage the life of their parent in this uh, story more than once. And you totally understand why they would do that at the moment. But then when the ramifications come flooding in afterwards, you're just like, oh, geez. And I remember being a teenager where all I cared about was myself. And every Saturday or whatever was the most important day <laughs> ever. And you know, my parents' whole reason for existence was to stand in the way of me being happy or getting what I wanted or self-fulfillment and all that. And I was like, I wouldn't have been far off of this character. Anyway, I don't know if that's why people don't do third-person omniscient. What what did you call it? I just called it omniscient. Uh, Point of view. But it's sometimes fun to have a character just be alien and you don't know why they do what they do, so you never get close to them. You can always just say, that is a villain, and I can't wait for them to get theirs. Yeah, sometimes it, if the people really are villains, it can have a tendency to weaken them if you go in there and, oh, let's find out his, his tragic backstory, find out why he made the Destructinator machine and uh, pointed it to... Uh, kill his brother, the mayor of the tri-state area. But sometimes, you know, they're not actually the the villain of the piece. They're just another character, and they have to learn something. And that's, I think, what we had with this story was, you know, they were all, well, most of them, I should say, had lessons to learn. We find out their despicable nature and so forth. But in the end, most of them, most of the ones that we got inside the heads of, they learned something and changed in the end. But yeah, there was a couple that just seemed to have got off scot-free uh, when it all ended, which was kind of upsetting, especially, I think you were saying some I can't remember which character you thought was the most despicable of all the characters in the book. Yeah, you had said uh, Simon, the, the father of, uh, of Andrew oh. Price. There you go, yeah. Simon Price was... I think he was the most despicable point of view character that we ever had because we did actually get into his head and, you know, hear his thoughts and why he was so awesome and <laughs> et cetera. Whereas, were you saying that Abo was the worst or who was Well, the- Abo is the worst without a doubt. I, JK would have to admit that. But no, Terry Whedon was the one that I was just oh, like, yes. oh, Jesus. We never got into her head either though, did we? I can't remember. It's been a long time. It was hard to get into her head. All she cared about was smack. Yeah, and I mean the the, the threat of losing her kid seemed to be sort of an angel on her shoulder, but we never really heard her thinking about it. It was it was something that her daughter the daughter was way more of a parent to that little boy yeah. than she ever was. I just I hated her so 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 much and I still hate her to this day and I want to go take a shit on her grave Sorry. she's not dead by the way anyway she's, she never existed at all as I know no no I, I just hated her so so much 
And, but, and her daughter was one of those characters. Crystal Whedon is one of the main point of view characters who is really hard to like. And we get into her head and I start to sympathize with her. And then we jump into a different character's head and we see just what a monster Crystal Whedon is. And I, I, I didn't like that. I, I wanted to just be able to say, I know what this person is and I'm okay with judging them because of it. And I think that's probably what real life is like is everybody has some good qualities and bad qualities and they have their own justification for whatever bad things that they do. Yeah, it was a tough slog because of the many unlikable characters. In the end, though, I felt that it was worth it. The ending was very, very tragic. It was really tough. And I was driving my car with tears coming down as the, the finale came. And, and as we were leading up to the finale, I was like, no. No, you do not. J.K. Rowling, don't you dare. Because I could tell where she was going with the ending. And I'm, I'm going to try. I'm not going to spoil the ending. I don't think we've spoiled anything. An end. I'm, I'm going to try not to spoil it. But yeah, I could see where she was going as the ending was coming up and the tragedy was approaching. And I went, don't you freaking dare. Because it's the one thing that I want to work out. I can care less if this other, you know, this marriage falls apart, this guy dies, that person is arrested, etc. So I don't care because they're all despicable bastards. But this needs to work out, and it didn't. It ends with a really, it's, it's interesting because I'm sure you probably hated it, but the reference to Rihanna's Umbrella song. Again and again through that damn Both movie. times when they used it, the echoing versions of it, once for Barry Fairbrother and then at the end. Both times I was bawling. <laughs> it was just very well written. And I, I like that song, I have to admit. I know that you hate Rihanna through and through. No redeeming quality, she is a villain. <laughs> that song and the, all the songs from that album I actually enjoy. And so I liked that, that they, and that the way that the pastor, the, the, when they do Barry Fairbrother's uh, funeral at the start, gets up there and he's like, the family has asked us to use, you know, he basically washes his hands of it. He's like, okay, we're going to play this really weird song instead of just singing a hymn. But the family told me to, okay? Uh, I thought that was funny. It was well done. It, it's a really hard story. It's not the kind of story that you read for fun I, although I guess that's what you do when you read you don't like hey I'm going to get a kick out of this one I'll go read this tragedy from J.K. Rowling but I thought it was worth it I thought it was an, uh, a good story and it was well told I don't know if you agree with me or if by the time you were done you're just like F this I wish no, I'd no. never picked it up early on I was saying F this but I stuck through it and eventually yeah there does arise a through line and a, an event that it's all building toward and you're like oh okay i can see where she's going because at first i had no idea where she was going i was just like what is the point of this there's a chapter where she just talks about the history of the town and a one area of the town and i'm just like why why are you guys doing this <laughs> and that's kind of what the whole book is about in a way and so obviously it had to be there we had to know why there was a disputed section of town. 
But at the time, I was just like, ugh. And yeah, I don't know. You said, do we read, why else do you read? The Game of Thrones books are no fun. I don't think they're fun. They're way more work than I'm ever willing to put into books. And uh, I guess I, I, you know, I have to have, be in a mindset where I'm willing to commit to those. So, so there's got to be something. And, and you know, if you read a scary book and it's actually scary, is that fun? I think it is. I think that's, especially for a certain segment of the population, it's the same kind of thing as going on a roller coaster. You go on a roller coaster and you drop off a cliff at a high speed and it scares, you know, people get scared to freaking death of that stuff. And there are people that just will not go on roller coasters because they're so scared. And there's others that go on it because of the scare and they like that. And, you know, I think there's fun. And there's, same with the Game of Thrones. It's dense, it's thick, and it's hard, similar to this J.K. Rowling book. It's hard sometimes, what the things that happen in the story. It's not a... Uh, YA book this time around. <laughs> this is a rough a world that's going on in Westeros. But uh, the twists and turns and stuff that, that the plot is taking is interesting and exciting. And I've made it through the five of them that are out now and I'm waiting for the next one and thinking, hmm, I think this is what's going to happen in the end. We'll see. Is, is the end in sight? I don't even know. <laughs> But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other reasons for reading. I mean, some people read because they have to for classes or whatever. Um, You read a novel that is assigned to you and you must, or you get a bad grade. Or you read just for education's sake, which in those cases you're usually reading more of textbooks or something like that. But somebody could even read a casual vacancy as an educational thing just to learn about J.K. Rowling and, you know, her writing style and, you know, almost kind of like we did where we were like, okay, we're going to listen to both books that she's done and compare and contrast and so forth. Okay. Why? Because I listened to Cuckoo's Calling first and I never considered stopping that one. From the very first chapter, I was into it. I was hooked. I was carried along by what felt like a master storyteller. And it was fun. Mysteries are fun. Yeah, they are. Um, and so each of the, the feel of the two books were so very, very different. But yeah, it's hard for me to reconcile that this is the same writer. <laughs> um, the world that she created for Harry Potter was, it was unfamiliar, but there was some kind of familiarity about it that made it feel like I longed to go back there. And the casual vacancy although it was set in our world, was so much more alien to me or so much more repulsive to me. And so it's just funny that somebody can do that, that can do such different things. It feels so different, and, and I guess that's real talent, but it just also makes me even less likely to believe that a computer program would say this is the same person <laughs> that wrote these. Right. Um, do you want to talk about Cuckoo's Calling, or do you...? Yeah, um... That one was, was definitely different. Like we've said, the, the books were like night and day in the joy that you get out of them. First of all, there was a main character. There wasn't a big mess of everybody. And we weren't jumping from head to head like we were in the uh, casual vacancy. This time we were 
at least, I mean, there were times that we went to the secretary's head because the two main people were our private detective and then his new secretary that he gets at the very start the temp, of the book. The temp, yes. The temp. And there were times when we would go into the secretary's head for this or that, but basically the majority of the book was spent in our private detective's head as we followed him, you know, and he interviewed this person, that person, went from lead to lead to try and discover what actually happened in this uh, investigation that he was doing. And so obviously this character is the one that we're supposed to like, and this character was a likable person. It was not... like you had with a lot of the characters in a casual vacancy where you just, you're like, man, can I skip to after this chapter so that I can get on to somebody that's not despicable? He wasn't like that. He was flawed. He was very flawed. He had lots of problems, which is kind of the way it is. I mean, that, that makes him a typical private detective. It seems like you have to be flawed to be a private detective. And there's certain ways that uh, private detectives are often flawed, and he had several of these uh, problems. Alcoholism seemed to be there. Always, uh, I don't know that you could say he was an alcoholic or that he had the possibility of being one, but he did have uh, problems in his life, and diving into alcohol to deal with those problems was the specter that was always there when he really couldn't afford to do so. I think, yeah, he had a ton of money problems, too. Right. And it seems to me that whenever you've got a main character who, who's you know, just about to lose everything, just about to lose their house or their business or their family or whatever, you, you immediately latch onto them. And, and, and then there you, there you have a goal. You have an end. Here's an obstacle I want them to overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of those guys who hasn't had a case in a long time and... A case walks in the door that could make the difference between op- staying open and closing his little uh, investigation agency. shop. Agency, thank you. And so you want him to succeed. You want him to solve the mystery. And uh, there were little things about the character that we didn't know. We didn't know what had happened to him in the past. And there would be oblique references to it. And I really liked how she parceled out the information little by little. So instead of just giving us a big info dump ch- chunk of that, and, and that's something as a writer I'm trying to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. And it, did, it, it, it didn't frustrate me, but it, uh, it kept me going. It was a carrot on a stick, where it's like, I want to find out what happened to him in the war. And I want to find out what happened, uh, you know, because he, like he was getting death threats. And it's like, okay, what happened with that? And it's not a unique way of writing a story, but it's a fun way to, to, guide, to keep you going where you have a main question that needs to be answered. But in answering that question, a whole bunch of other questions are, are asked. And you can get a bunch of these little questions answered here and there that satisfy you enough to keep going until you find the main answer. Mm-hmm. I, and see, I don't read a lot of mysteries. I know your wife just loves mystery. Yeah, eats them up. Are they all mysteries. like that? I think that's kind of the way. I mean, I don't know if your character necessarily has that because she reads a lot of the mystery series that are mm-hmm. out there, like Sue Grafton's A is for Alibi, B is for Burglar, C is for Cunting. Hey! Oh. So w- when that happens, obviously you can only parcel out information for so long. I mean, when book two of Cormoran's Strike comes out, 
you which, know, what, which has already happened by the time that people are listening. Yeah, to that's this. probably true. What what are they going to have to parcel out for us this time around? You know what I mean? Is there something else that we need to know? It seems like we've learned most of the important secrets of his past, and so now it's he just goes out and solves a darn mystery. So yeah, I mean, uh, some myst- some can be like that, and some cannot. But yeah, I think it's a, I think that's a common thing just in writing in general. You know, they, they'll have characters that have a secret in the past that they're trying to live down, or you know, that's one of those things that I've seen, you know, in character books about how to build strong and interesting characters. You know, one of those things is you know they want you to know what their biggest fear is and what you know thing in the past that they if they could change any one thing of their past, what would it be? Uh, those kind of things are the things that even if you never actually reveal them, you want to know them so that you can know how the character should act when certain things face them. Well, she probably knows a lot of stuff about Cormoran Strike that we don't know. Right. I and mean, that stuff could still come out. Notes and notes, of, or at least heard of them for Harry Potter, yeah. all the crap that she knows from behind the scenes. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff could still come out. Uh, in uh, an earlier conversation about J.K. Rowling where I, uh, we were talking about she has written these fabulously successful books. Now she can write whatever she wants. I did question why not do more, not Harry Potter books, but another series of fantasy books or, or adventure stories or whatever. Why would you write A Casual Vacancy? Why Why would you write something like that when you can do something like this? And that... It sounds like my parents <laughs> saying, you know, like, why would you write a story about, you know, the undead or whatever it is when you would write something about children and fairy land and baby Jesus and cherubs and care bears? <laughs> I guess I'm saying the same thing to her. And I don't I just don't know. And my question was, do you think that she's completely burnt out on fantasy after what she did there or? It could be, although she does have in store doing that Harry Potter film trilogy, although she's just doing screenplays of that, right? She's not actually doing novels. So that's possible that she's burnt out. Maybe she's just like, I've done that. Let me try something else. I want to write a novel that is going to be in the literary section and people will read it in English classes in 2000. 50 or something like that. They'll be teaching out of that or whatever it will be. They'll be like, now children, the word cunting was, they started using this commonly in uh, the, the late 2000s to the early 2010s. It's a quaint reference now, but... <laughs> what do you want me to do with that? Well, what do you mean? Bleep do you want me to believe it? Or? You could probably leave it. I'm sure that's fine. Okay. Sorry, I, well, I, sh- I shouldn't be using that language. Uh, but J.K. Rowling did to use that language. I didn't even know you could make that into a verb, and yet Simon Price said that word at least ten times, probably in the course of the book. Anyways, well, well, wait, wait. Okay, let's pick some other. Okay, I read Terry Brooks in between the two Rowling books. Uh huh. And you go into a library and look at Terry Brooks's works. And you're going to find fantasy, 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 post-apocalyptic fantasy, fairy stories, and... About the police. Yes. Fantasy. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know if he's, I mean, maybe he's written other stuff, but it's just like, okay, I've gotten, I'm really good at this, and my audience likes when I write these fantasy books. 
So that's what he does. And I don't know if he just digs it or if that's what sells. And yes, there's a difference between every author ever and J.K. And Rowling. J.K. Rowling. Because J.K. Rowling is the richest author ever. Yeah. And so she can do whatever the hell she wants. If she does, you know, Terry Brooks might want to write a book just like A Casual Vacancy. But A, he probably knows that no publisher is going to take it. They're going to be like, thanks. <laughs> okay, Why would I want that from you? We can compare a John Grisham or a Stephen King to J.K. Rowling. They're not quite where she is, but they're both insanely rich. True. And, 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 and they're probably the American equivalents of J.K. Rowling. Grisham goes back to lawyer books again and again and again. And King will write the odd baseball book or the odd nonfiction thing. But horror seems to just be where it's at for him. He's like, that's what I like. That's what yeah, I want to write. I think that's a lot of it, too. And I'm, sh- I'm willing to guess that Terry Brooks may. I mean, we don't know. He may just not want to write anything but fantasy. It's what he likes. It's what he knows. It's what he wants to write. It's the ideas that he gets. And I think you and I, for example, right now, that's what we would write because the ideas that come into our heads are fantasy, sci-fi, horror ideas. They're genre fiction ideas just like that. Whereas John Grisham, he was a lawyer. He has only written law books, basically, and football books. That's what he likes, so that's what he writes, I think, is probably the deal. J.K. Rowling is in a totally... Let me interrupt. Skipping Christmas, though, seems like a really strange thing. And do you think that that's him trying to do something else? Or is it just like... I always wanted to write this, and I just couldn't because people wanted law books. It's possible. I think either way, he could be... I don't think anybody tries to stretch by doing a Christmas book. But maybe. They, I mean, it was a comedy, for one, and he, his books aren't generally comedies. Although some of them are funny as hell. I love, of all of his books, The Rainmaker the best because that was so, so humorous. Um, despite all... The, crap that's going on in it okay so what were you saying a second ago about jk rowling um jk rowling is as we were saying in a unique position where she can just say okay, you know sure i sold bajillion books doing these ya fantasy series but uh, you know what i i want to know if i can write this kind of a book and so i'm going to struggle at it for five years the way people that write these kind of books you know you hear the stories the way hemingway or whoever, Faulkner or whatever, hit their head against the wall and worked on this thing for years and et cetera, et cetera, to write the great American novel, although hers is the great British novel. But maybe that's what she did. I mean, she can set her own prerogatives and priorities. She doesn't have to answer to anybody. She doesn't have to write anything again. She could be like Stephanie Meyer and never write another book. Okay, we talk about Stephanie Meyer a lot. Let's... Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, what's going on here? Let's talk about Suzanne Collins for a second. Okay. Because that's somebody, she's only written Hunger Games, one, uh-huh. two, and three, as far as I know. These books are insanely successful. What do you write next? Whatever you want. Collins is in a position where she can write whatever she wants. She never needs write again. She's as rich as, Stephanie as Meyer. Meyer, although, you know, Meyer probably has a lot more sequel money and uh, books beyond the third one money. But if Collins puts out another book and it's the equivalent of a casual vacancy, does that hurt her in any way? Does that lose her fans? Does that, what is the benefit of saying, I'm going to write another book 
about a strong female teenage character. And this one's going to be like in the Wild West or something. Or I'm going to write a story about a teenage girl who goes to law school. You know what I mean? Or does she have somebody who says, it's set on a space station. It's a future society kind of thing. That, those would sell so much more. I mean, it's different from Hunger Games, but it's still sci-fi. It's still YA. It's still adventure. It's still got a female lead that's a teenager. Are these voices saying these things to her? Or do people just say, does her agent just say, hey, how's the new book coming? I don't care what it is. I just care that you finish it. I'm sure there's a little of both. Certain people, yeah, they're just, just get us a new book. I want something to sell. I don't care what it is, as long as you're done with it now. But yeah, I'm sure there's other people. And it, it's funny. I mean, you, you've heard all sorts of, you know, the within the recent years, people railing about the companies and the 1% and all that kind of thing. And the rich are just getting richer while the poor are getting poorer and the huge gap between them and all that kind of stuff. And there's there are people that all they want to do is make more money, despite the fact that they have so much that they couldn't even spend it all, you know, even if they went on a Brewster's Millions type spending spree. And yet they're still out there every day going to work, working hard, trying to get more, double their coffers and triple them. And what's the purpose to it? Well, that's, they just want more. That's what they want. And I think there are people that see it that way. You know, or they just don't stop to think, crap, I don't need any more money. Why am I writing at all? I could just freaking get a yacht and spend the rest of my life sailing around the world and enjoying myself and relaxing and F everything. There's people that could do that. And I can't. And, and there are writers out there, I'm sure, that have done that. Yeah. And maybe Meyer is one of them. Maybe Stephanie Meyer says, I'm a mom now. I'm a multimillionaires mom and now I can give my kids anything they want, and, and that's my priority now. And yeah, I bag on Stephanie Meyer because I made the mistake of reading Twilight. Some of these other people, like the, the Veronica Roths of the world or whatever, I've never read her book, so I don't know if she's a good writer or not. But, but there's a guy, James Dashner, who wrote The Maze Runner, and then the sequel to The Maze Runner, and then the sequel to that, and then a whole prequel series to The Maze Runner. Is this that? I, I just I, I need money and I can continue to make stories about this and make more and more and more money? Or does he honestly love writing about the Maze Runner universe and have no other things going on in his head? And along those same lines, why did Stephanie Meyer write The Host? Was it a story she's like, oh, I've, I've always wanted to write a science fiction story, even though I've never seen a science fiction film or read a science fiction book? And now that's painted by hearing her interviewed about vampire stuff. Maybe she likes science fiction. Maybe she actually has read science fiction books. Or was that an attempt to start a new series about that character? In that world, how does the host end? Does it end open-ended? Or does it end like, this is it, and no more stories ever need to be told about it's, the host? It's open-ended and yet not. It's like, the, I mean, at the very least, the story for that book is told. And you could tell more in that universe if you wanted to, but you don't have to. You could do a matrix and pulse a couple more stories out of your butt, even though the entire story is 
told oh, so, with so anything. So it was a matrix. It, well, I wouldn't say it was a matrix, but I'm saying you could do that with anything if I, I'm, you I'm feel sorry, the if need. you're listening, but what I mean by that is the Matrix, the 1999 movie, The Matrix Ends. Neo triumphs over the machines. The, the end. end. And anybody who, who feels differently, well, that's fine. But that's the movie I saw. And when they did sequels, I enjoyed some of what they did with the sequels. But it was like, now we have to write a whole new series. Because the, they had finished that story of, of Neo right. being the one. But with, uh, for example, Harry Potter and the uh, Philosopher's Stone, it's so clearly not the end. It's the end of that first year, and he's found out that there's a whole new world out there with new horizons to pursue, and that there's new enemies out there, and then there's new wonders to, I'll take you anywhere. Uh, There's new things that he has yet to be introduced to, and I think just that's because of the nature of how that book was written. I think she wrote it as the first installment of a bunch of these that I'm going to write. But Harry Potter is an epic fantasy kind of thing. It feels like that sort of thing lends itself to doing a whole bunch of stories uh, and not tying up all the loose ends at the end of a, of a book. Again, I, it's such an alien thing to me. I, I don't have a publisher. I don't have people clamoring, hey, give us another one of these. I don't have an agent who says, wow, have you seen the numbers on so-and-so thing? I don't even look at how well the things that I have done sell for fear of discovering a zero. (laughs) And so, I don't know. You and I have had lots of conversations, some on the air, about whether it would be fine to have one book that really breaks out and so you write a bunch of sequels to that, but let all of the other stories that you'd like to write just fall by the wayside because there's a dollar sign attached to this one. Right. And I don't know how we even got on this, whether we were talking about what Suzanne Collins should do next. But, oh, here's something. Uh, I, I recently was reading the Charlene Harris Sookie Stackhouse books, the, the, the Southern Vampire Mysteries, and they finished those. She had a final book in the series, and then she put out a book after that that was sort of an epilogue book, which I was like, wow, really? Final, final book? And then immediately after, she started on a new series of books, which is good. I mean, do it. Of course, you're a writer. But when I read the flap, the dust jacket about what this new series was, I I was bowled over. It's a new vampire series. And I was just like, oh, no. Why why would you do that? Because the Suki Stackhouse series isn't seven books or a trilogy of books. There's probably 15 books or more. Mm-hmm. And then to say, okay, we're going to start a new series of vampire books just made me think, do you really love vampires that much? And if she does, more power to her. But I felt it was much more likely that an agent is saying, you wrote this book and this book and this book, and the vampire one sold more than all the others put together. That's what you should be writing. And it just it, it made me feel bad for her. Right. And why would I feel bad for a multimillionaire <laughs> writer? Right. But it just... It just made me wonder if maybe her options were more limited or, or, or she, was, she was forced to continue to drain more blood out of this stone, more true blood out of this stone. I don't know. I mean, it's an enviable position for any other writer. Right. But if you were one of those 1% of writers <laughs> to reference what you said, would you just shake your head and be like, oh, that's, that's such a shame? You know, like recently 
John Grisham put out another Jake Brigance book. It's a sequel of sorts to A Time to Kill. And if this one sells 10 times more than the book before it, then does suddenly his agent say, okay, hey, where's the next Jake Brigance book? Even though there had been 25 years between A Time to Kill and Sycamore Row, is that the name of the, the new book? And yeah, I can feel sorry for Charlene Harris. I can't feel sorry for John Grisham. But still, if the pressure comes on to write more and more Jake Brigance books instead of more and more whatever he wants to write, that's too bad. I don't know. I mean, I've enjoyed a lot of his books. And A Time to Kill wasn't the one where I was just like, yay, this is the better than all the others, where there are some books that, that writers write and people go back to that one again and again and mm-hmm. again and again. Maybe Matthew McConaughey just requested a, a sequel. I think that's a, a, a pretty good uh, possibility. possibility that, yeah, the, the agent called up McConaughey's agent and said, you know, hey, we've already got this sucker optioned for a, a movie to get your man on it. Um, and I think that that would be really neat. Matthew McConaughey took on that Lincoln Lawyer book. I, I think he's actually some kind of producer on that as well with the expectation that they could make a bunch of Lincoln Lawyer movies. I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm fascinated by people who write for a living and how it works and the pitfalls to it and the things that are really good. And when we had that pseudonym conversation, that was fascinating to me of why you would write a pseudonym book. And, and you know, you, what you said earlier, maybe Stephanie Meyer has other books out there or maybe uh, Suzanne Collins has other books out there under pseudonyms and there's a freedom to that. Which is fine. I mean, it's possible that they do. The real name of Robert Jordan is not Robert Jordan. Ed became his most famous pseudonym, but he wrote stuff under several different names. And then he died, and the paper said, James Rigney died today. And everybody's like, who, who cares? Why would I care? Oh, my gosh, this was, oh, this was Robert Jordan. Oh, my gosh, that's so sad. And, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff will come out someday if they do have... Uh, pseudonyms because somebody knows. And I think in the card catalog or something like that for the Library of Congress or something, you know, the, the real name of the author has to be recorded somewhere. So the actual author's name for the books that are written under pseudonyms is, is there somewhere. Somebody knows that. That's how Richard Bachman was outed. Okay. So. Somebody had looked through that registry or something like that. And I don't remember that it said Stephen King, but it said the same birth date and the same agent or something like that. And okay. the guy's like, oh. So eventually, maybe just when these people die, they'll be like, this person wrote this under this name and also this under this name. And we'll be like, whoa, really? I did not know that Suzanne Collins also wrote whatever. Um, we may find out these things in the future because that's, that's the thing about authors. They're not public personas like actors are you know things they're not celebrities there's very very few of them that you could look at and know their faces only the less than one the one the zero 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 point one (laughs) percent authors are the ones you actually know the faces of Uh, even and and that's the funny thing because even you know they put pictures on dust jackets and i don't know (laughs) Sometimes they'll put a picture of a fake guy on a dust jacket or they'll get a really old picture. I know that Stephen King has done that for fun when he's doing his Richard Bachman and he's already been discovered so it doesn't mean anything but he's taken like pictures of him from when he was way young and put that on the dust jacket. I wonder if there are people out there that just... I, did 
Robert Galbraith have a picture on his dust jacket? Because he had a whole persona invented, right? I think there may have been a picture. Because I know that there were several signed copies by yeah. Robert Galbraith that came out and suddenly had tons of value right. on eBay once it became known that it wasn't really Robert Galbraith. Yeah, probably and any I just, first edition of that book has got to be super valuable it just is, because yeah. of so, such a small run for such a huge book. But uh, yeah, it makes me wonder who, if they do put a face, a picture for this, you know, who is this model that they got the picture from to be Robert Galbraith makes me wonder. To sum this all up, to bring it back around, both of these books, I think, were worth the read in very different ways. Cuckoo's Calling is just, it's fun, it's interesting, it's its a mystery, and mysteries are always just kind of that way. You just, to go back to my analogy from the start there they are the water slide you just get on you slip right down you slide gently right into that pool literature books tend not to be that way they're often written more for the prettiness of the words than they are for the plot of the story i wouldn't say that that's the case in this book but yeah i mean when you get to the bottom i think it may just be a sand pit more than a pool you don't just slip right in when you come off that slide it's tougher to get into and it takes longer to enjoy but there is enjoyment i think in the end of both of those books i think even the ending of a casual vacancy worked better than the ending of a cuckoo's calling yeah i liked the ending better the mystery when it was solved my wife said this, who is a connoisseur of mysteries. That's basically all she reads. She said it was one of those mysteries that wasn't meant to be solved. You weren't meant to figure this out on your own because it was just too tricky for that to be possible, I think. One of the main joys of reading a mystery is trying to figure out the mystery before it gets to the end. See through the red herrings and see that character that seems insignificant to be able to see oh no no that's the one i'm oh you'll see at the end kind of a thing and to see if you're right and for some reason people are disappointed if they are right too they're like oh this book wasn't very good because i figured it out so maybe that was where she was going but yeah they were both really uh they were good books they were good reads and rowling's a good writer i mean that's the, the thing that she could make me care about these people in this crappy small town you know not London, but somewhere outside of London where everything is slow and dull and people's concerns are small and petty. I cared about it when I was done, and I was really heartbroken when it ended the way it did. And, you know, that takes talent. And she's just a good writer. Whatever it is that she writes, I want to read it because she everything. I've been pleased with everything that she does, no matter how hard it may be to begin with. No, I, I, I've come to appreciate somebody who's a really good writer and who can carry you along in the story. There's, there's a way that certain storytellers tell stories where it feels like you are part of the experience. And, and there are some writers that have a voice and you feel like they're telling you the story, which I've also really enjoyed. And yeah, then there are just some, I don't know, their voice doesn't speak to me or doesn't work for me or it feels like it's written for a child and I, I tend not to like those books, and that's that. I, I, I don't know. I, I like we said at the very, very beginning. I don't read nearly as much as you do, and I give up a lot quicker 
than you do on books. And I don't know why that is. Sometimes I just get frustrated or sometimes I, it just it, things ring false to me. And that's part of why I dislike YA a lot. Not that either of these books were YA. Anyway, I don't know. We can continue talking because we're passionate about writing and we have read other things. But we've talked for a long time. Yeah, we have. It would have been neat to be able to break this into two episodes, but I don't see how that's possible. Yeah, it would have been smart had we split it up correctly. But that's not going to happen. Instead, it's going to be one massive one. Hopefully, y'all like that because that's what you get. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. <laughs> yes, sir. Alright, thanks for listening everybody I hope you enjoyed our episode of That Gets My Goat I'm Big Anklovich And I'm Rashad Field Good night See ya Bunting Whoa That Gets My Goat is produced under a Creative Commons attribution No derivatives license That means you can copy it, share it, and make paper dolls out of it But you can't sell it or use it in your little voodoo rituals I'm talking to you, sir is it? It's not my habit, sadly. My habit is to leave it on for weeks and weeks and then be like, oh, wow, it still works. That's weird. How does it still work after weeks and weeks? What was that? Is that the world's largest fart? Did it come from you? <laughs> Maybe. Oh, Luckily, it's a big, wide room, so it can disperse out and we won't have to just simmer in the smell. <laughs> Uh, when I was in L.A., there was a bumper sticker I saw in somebody's car that said, read books for the blind, and it had a website for it. And I wrote down that website, and I was like, what a cool thing that would be. How fun would it be to you know, read The Shining to some blind old lady? But, <laughs> yeah, it didn't, it didn't really. Never panned out for you? I don't know that I ever even went to the website. Do you remember that little clip that Renee Chambliss used for her audiobook I think it was the audible panel wasn't it where she had the little clip from Seinfeld where George had started listening to audiobooks and he just couldn't manage to read a book anymore himself and he's talking to an old man yeah, a blind he, man he says oh these these audiobooks have ruined me for reading and then he sees a guy no it had to be something else because he sees a guy that is listening to audiobooks and this is the first time he's learned about audiobooks so what, how did he get the books before? It was uh, like a, a class or something that he was taking, and they gave you the option of being able to listen to the textbook. And he's just like, wow, I, oh, it, it's so much better than having to sit in front of a book or whatever. And he's like, but you know, you only people in the class can, can check these books out. And then he sees a, a blind guy, and he's like, how did you get this book? And he's like, well, I'm blind. And he's like, oh. And, and he, he says, tells I love that. And the guy says, yeah, tell me about it. These audiobooks have ruined me for Braille, which I thought was pretty funny. But that was really aside the point. Maybe we should just cut that whole bit out. It can be the post-credits uh, outtake if it's even worth that. Okay. <clears throat>